Lisa Marie McGee Dixon was murdered on March 12, 1994, and this is her aunt's story. Please be aware that although all of our episodes are tragic, this story is the murder of a child, and listeners may find it particularly distressing. Morning the Murdered is a podcast I created because in 1999, a friend of mine was murdered. My name is Kelly, and I am your host. I saw the effects that murder have on family members, and I wanted to give a voice to the loved ones of murdered victims. Every week, I interview the family member of a murder victim. So please be sure to tune in every Thursday to hear their stories on Morning the Murdered podcast. Sharon, Pennsylvania began as a coal mining center, but transitioned to iron and steel making as its main economic industries in the early 1800s, but is now strong in the areas of education, healthcare, and social services for employment. The population in 1994 was right around 14,000. Living in a small town, the residents feel safe and quite removed from the tragedies that occur in big cities. There is a lovely place to visit in Sharon called Boole Park. You can go biking through the tree-lined paths or golf on their newly built 18-hole course, rent one of their many boats to enjoy hours of leisure on the water, or walk or jog following the winding paths through trees and wetlands. This park was built by one of Sharon's wealthy residents in 1915. Lacking recreational lands for the community to enjoy, the Boole family wanted to create a place that other families could enjoy. A small town where people help each other. A small town that fills families with a sense of safety and security. A small town that cheers for the Tigers, their local high school football team. A small town that looks out for each other. A small town that never expected a toddler to be murdered. This is the story of Lisa Marie McGee Dixon's murder. Lisa was the firstborn grandchild, adding another member to this loving and close-knit family. Lisa's grandparents absolutely adored her. Her grandfather was so entranced by this new grandbaby that she was deemed the apple of his eye. When Lisa was born, she was instantly loved and was the sweetest and most adorable girl in the world to her two loving aunties. Lisa's mother was the middle child, with one older and one younger sister. These sisters didn't always see eye to eye as teenagers, and although their relationships were strained at times, this didn't affect their love for each other, and they grew to become close in time. Tina was the eldest girl, and she will be sharing this devastating story. What was your relationship like with Lisa? Um, you know, because she was the first everything, she was definitely spoiled, but not spoiled in the sense that she was a brat. Um, you know, we all enjoyed spending time with her, making her laugh, um, seeing her smile, 
doing things with her, like just one-on-one, like me and her or even my younger sister and her or my parents and her, um, it, when you have that first baby in, in, a, you know, in, in a family unit, it just opens your eyes to like new life and the possibilities that you know, she can bring to the family. That is so beautiful the way you said that. My goodness, it is so true, but the way you said that is so eloquent. You you just you said it perfectly. I love it. Are you three sisters very close? Um, as three as close as three sisters can be, you know, when you're teenagers or even young adults, you're not as close as we've grown and matured in our in our own families and um we've learned to be closer. When Lisa was taken from us, um, it, it made us realize life is short. And then five years later, we lost our dad. And again, that brought us just even closer. And recently, in 2017, we lost our mother. Um, and I would say, with that loss, um, the bond between us has even deepened. Um, surprisingly, because we were not always close as teenagers. Tell me about Lisa as a child. What what type of child was she like? Uh, Lisa was, um, you know, my sister likes to say she was the apple of my dad's eye. Um, you know, he had three girls, so he knew all about baby girls and everything like that. Um, but when Lisa came into the family, it was like, Myself and my sisters were second-class citizens. And I say that out of respect for my dad. Um, but she definitely had my dad wrapped. And, and, you know, she had all of us wrapped, really. But she was very outgoing, very friendly, um, loved to sing and dance. Um, her favorite cartoon was Barney, mm-hmm. um, when Barney was very popular. So it was nothing for her to just start singing his theme song. And she carried a Barney doll with her about 65% of the time. Um, You could find her just dancing and, you know, she'd walk in a room and and she would light up the room. And and you could see that in my parents' face. That was their first grandchild and they were so in love. Lisa was two years old, precocious, adorable and loving. Families always have dreams for the wee ones in the family wondering what they will be like as teenagers and adults, perhaps with children themselves. Devastatingly, this family had to live with sadness and sorrow and anger. So now, let's talk about the devastating situation that happened when, you know, your niece was killed. Uh, Tell me about the day you found out about that. Um, she was taken on March 12, 94. Um, like I stated, she was, you know, she was a toddler. She was two, two and a half years old. Um, I had found out early, early in the morning. Um, but about three, four o'clock in the, in the morning, my parents' neighbors were knocking on my door. And I just woke up to them screaming, Tina, Tina, your dad needs you. And I was a daddy's girl growing up. Um, so they're screaming, Tina, Tina, your dad needs you. Well, we knew that he had heart conditions, and I thought, you know, something happened to him because you just don't think that something could happen to a baby. Um, and we live in a small community. We weren't exposed to violence. Um, there was, 
it was it's a cliche. We were the small American family that was naive, didn't believe it could happen to us. So three o'clock in the morning, I'm just hearing my neighbors knocking on my door and screaming that my dad needed me. Um, and my boyfriend at the time, um, he had just come home from work because he was working afternoons, and and we had a uh, a newborn baby. Um, and he was like, just go, just go, I got it, you know. And so I ran out the door, and they're telling me that they rushed Lisa to the hospital. Um, you need to get to the hospital right away. So when I got to the hospital, um, the first thing that I seen was my dad. Um, he was outside. There was nobody with him. My dad was growing up, you know, he was a hunter. He was a mechanic. He was a truck driver. So you always... And you, and as a, as a daughter, you always think of your dad as you know your superhero or or the man that's not going to break. Um, and he was standing there outside, and he was just bawling. And you could see that he that there was no tears, but he was just so overcome with grief that he was shaking, and he didn't have the words. And I'm running up to him, and I'm like, "What's going on? Where, what's going on? Where's mom? Where's Christy?" And um, he's like, "They're in the ho- they're in the hospital. They're in the emergency room. Go in. They need you." And I'm like, "What's going on? What's going on?" And he's just telling me, you know, like, he didn't want me to see him break. And, like, he didn't want to admit that he needed help. So then I rush into the emergency room, and my mom and my, they directed me to this off-center room where my mom and my sister were. And my sister's in there just screaming. And my mom is just, you can see that she's just broken. And they tell me that um, Lisa had stopped breathing and they rushed her to the hospital and they had pronounced her. And, and having gone through, you know, different grief sessions or talking to other victims, um, you don't realize what it is at that moment. But I was in shock. You know, I'm like, what are you talking about? She's two. Two years old, stop breathing, you know. And I, I, I just couldn't wrap my head around it. Um, and we had no idea. You know, we, we they just said that, she stopped breathing. And my sister's boyfriend was there at the time, and he was saying that he was watching Lisa um, while he, he was watching Lisa. My sister was sleeping, um, and she was dancing to Friday Night Lights or Friday Night Videos. Um, and so he had music on, and she was in front of the TV dancing, and, and he said he went to run her a bath, and when he come out, she had collapsed. Lisa's mother and boyfriend called 911 in a panic. They didn't know what was happening with this beautiful and precious little two-year-old baby. The family began gathering at the hospital, completely devastated by the news that their lovely Lisa, the little girl whose personality was so endearing, everyone fell in love with her immediately as she danced into a room singing her favorite song, the Barney song, The family sat waiting to hear from the doctors what underlying condition could have caused her sudden death. No one ever suspecting the dire circumstances that led to her demise. How could anyone ever suspect that a two-year-old could be murdered? Their two-year-old. This just couldn't be possible. There was no bruises on her. There was nothing to explain someone being beaten to death. Um, and so you just you think it's natural causes. Shortly after we were still at the hospital, 
But shortly after we had got there, that's when the um, Sharon Police Department showed up, and there was a detective. And the hospital staff had alerted him that they expect that they suspected foul play. And he um, he at that point said to my dad and my sister, um, "We will be contacting you because this isn't right." Six months previous to Lisa's murder, her mother started noticing that she was losing her hair. She didn't understand why and knew that her daughter needed to be seen by a doctor. She made an appointment and took Lisa in. The doctor diagnosed alopecia, which is also known as spot baldness and causes hair loss on some or all parts of the body. There was another incident that caused Lisa to be rushed to the hospital. Lisa's mother was at work and received a call from her boyfriend saying that something was wrong with her daughter. This time, Lisa was rushed to the hospital. She couldn't stand or walk. The boyfriend said she must have fallen in the bathtub. The doctor seemed to agree that this could have been the cause and discharged this precious child back into their care. Unlike these previous known visits, the doctors knew something sinister had occurred. They reviewed her medical records and could see the pattern that had been building in such a very short time. They could see that this death was far from being caused by anything natural. The family waited in the hospital, having a terrible time. They had so many questions and no answers. The doctors wanted the police there before they told the family what they surmised happened. The family never expected abuse, ever. And the other piece that the detective picked up on, and you know, in we seen it that day. Like, um, my sister was, and, and she still is kind of a private person about her relationship. But that day, my sister had a black eye. And things started to click, you know, because, again, you know, hindsight, um, there were incidences where my sister would go to pick Lisa up from my mom and dad's, and Lisa would be like, I don't want to go home. I want to stay here with grandma and grandpa, and she would, like, scream. And we just thought, you know, well, she's a toddler. She's getting away with a lot of my mom and dad's. You know, that's why she doesn't want to go with her mom. But then when her boyfriend came to pick Lisa up, it was always, oh, I love you, I love you, and, you know, can't wait to go watch you play basketball because you play basketball at the local gym. And, um, you know, again, working with victims and, and going through counseling and hearing about uh, domestic violence, the victim usually acts out to the person that's not being abusive because they know that they're not going to have consequences. But she was all lovey-dovey with him because she knew if she wasn't that he would take it out on her later on. Oh, my goodness. That is so devastating. A little wee baby of two and a half years old having to understand this concept oh my goodness that is so sad and we found out you know during the course of the investigation that Chrissy had told my sister had told her boyfriend that you know she was leaving he had a pack of stuff you know that they say that you know after you tell that abusive person that that's when it becomes even more violent and in this case it did it escalated and he you know he was found guilty and killed my niece 
until this moment when sort of the light shone on you, realized there was abuse going on. That is correct. As the family, the grandparents, aunties and mother sat wondering and worrying, not comprehending at first what they were hearing from the police. The boyfriend was also sitting there. He began telling Lisa's mother to not believe the police, that it's not true. He was insisting she go home with him, and there they would work things out. At this point, Lisa's grandfather stepped in, putting the pieces of the puzzle together, seeing the black eye on his daughter, Lisa's mother, feeling sick to his stomach at these thoughts, these signs, the potential reality of it all, and what it may mean. There was no way he was letting her go home with this potential monster. She was coming home with him. Her father was not about to let her go home with an abuser and a murderer. The detectives were clear that they didn't believe Lisa's mother was involved. On the contrary, they could see her black eye as well. They felt she was in a destructive and likely abusive relationship. However, they were clear about one thing. She was expected to cooperate fully with the investigation. Her testimony would be critical. Tina admits their family was naive to abusive relationships. They didn't know what signs to look for. This wasn't part of their world. Until now. Lisa's grandfather and her mother's new boyfriend, who had been a part of Lisa's world for the last nine months, didn't have a close relationship. He was a fisherman, and this new guy didn't go out fishing with him. A relationship hadn't begun. They didn't have a bad relationship. They just had no relationship. They weren't doing things that a potential son-in-law would likely do to begin that closeness that happens when you're a part of a family. The grandfather tolerated him. Tina also didn't know him that well. They got together at Sunday dinners and with the kids, and she knew her sister loved him. She just thought he was okay. When speaking to Tina about the order of events that took place at the hospital on that dreadful day, her memory is a blur. Their family had to deal with not only the tragedy that so suddenly struck them, the death of Lisa, but then to find out that she was killed at the hands of someone that was supposed to be protecting her, keeping her safe, loving her. It was just too much to bear. And then there was the 12-year-old auntie, the youngest of Lisa's mother's sisters. This almost teenager spent plenty of time with her niece. She babysat her, played with her endlessly, and had a very close bond. She was devastated and confused and had to learn far too young about some disturbing topics. Lisa's mother, what was her reaction in the hospital to this? Uh, to the detective saying this? Were you there when uh, the detective actually told her this? I was, um, because they, they had said that, you know, they want to speak to them, you know, later on that day and everything. And um, I just remember seeing her just shaking uncontrollably, you know, tears streaming down her face and just shaking. Um, there was... There was nothing that she was saying, nothing that was verbal. It was just all physical. She was shaking. She was crying. And it was almost like 
if you went over to her, she didn't want to be touched. Just, I'm sure what she was feeling um, and what she was going through at that time was and is something that, you know, she can't describe. Um, but it was all, her, her reaction was all physical. The tears, the shaking, her leg going up and down super fast. And, and she's a smoker, so... And at that time, you were allowed to smoke in a hospital. So, you know, chain smoking, um, just trying to calm her nerves and drinking coffee. Um, but it was all physical with her. It wasn't anything verbal. Tell me a bit about what happened when the investigation began and, and how did you really start to learn that your niece had been murdered? At what point did you really wrap your head around it? So it was within... I want to say it was actually the same day that my dad and my sister went down to the police department. Um, and I wasn't, you know, I wasn't there. I wasn't part of the conversation. But um, the captain, the detective, the lead detective, um, told my dad and my sister that they suspected foul play, that the hospital had called them to do an investigation. And part of the reason why was not only because of her age that it would be automatic that an investigation would take place, but also because of the previous incidences where Lisa was taken to either the emergency room or she, there was a, you know, a doctor's visit for something that happened. Um, and, you know, they said that they, at that point there would be an autopsy um, and there would be more findings. Um, the detective was pretty hard on my sister and he, he told her, you know, um, we need you to cooperate or you will be charged um, as well as, you know, because you were there and, you know, things can be construed that you were a part of it. And, um, you know, he told her that I don't believe you were, but we, we need your cooperation. We need you to, you know, be a part of this investigation. Um, the detective himself was, you know, he was, he was amazing. He, he was a longtime detective with the city of Sharon, um, and him and my dad continued to talk and communicate um, at least once a week. In the beginning part of the investigation, my dad was calling, and he was willing to take my dad's calls. Um, as time progressed and the investigation um, continued, um, he wasn't as willing to provide information, obviously, because he had to protect the investigation. But they always stood by the fact that, you know, Chrissy wasn't involved. Um, and they always stood by the fact that, um, you know, this was premeditated because of the previous incidents. While the investigation was ongoing, Lisa's mother went to stay with relatives out of town. She had to because of the threats that were being made against her. The monster who killed this toddler, well, his parents lived only one block away from Lisa's grandparents. His name was not on the lease of their apartment, so he had to leave it immediately. However, being threatened, Lisa's mom could not live there either. Her father and mother were very clever to get her out of town. When someone is abusive, the most dangerous time in their relationship is usually when the abused partner tries to leave. And this abuser was obviously capable of great harm. He had already killed once. Lisa's mother and grandmother wanted to be there when this hideous person was to be arrested. They wanted to actually see him being handcuffed. 
The police are not allowed to advise victims of when the arrests will be made. However, this family was tipped off. The police saw how Lisa's mother and grandparents and aunties were struggling. And this speaks volumes to the compassion that this family was shown throughout this horrendous ordeal by their detectives. It happened at a diner during the lunch rush. Most of the family were there to witness the event. They saw him get arrested and brought out in handcuffs. Then the trial had to begin. And during the trial, the family had to hear the grisly details of the abuse Lisa had suffered at the hands of someone that no one had suspected. So now the trial started and um, who, who was at the trial every day watching and listening and, and tell us uh, what happened. It started um, in August of 95. Um, the, the key evidence what, for me was what the pathologist said. Um, you know, he, when, she, when Chrissy and he rushed her to the hospital about three weeks before she was killed, and he was saying that she fell in the bathtub and was having a seizure, the pathologist said that there was no trauma to the back of her head, but there was knuckle-sized bruises in her temple that were old. So it wasn't something that happened the night that she was killed. Um, and they said, you know, he couldn't give us a, a, an exact date that those knuckle-sized bruises were in her temple, but they think that he hit her so hard in the temple that it caused her to have a seizure. Um, she had a little mark that was on her cheek. Um, my parents used to use kerosene heaters to heat their home, and um, it was explained that, um, and my younger sister had a Dalmatian dog at this time, so it was explained when Lisa got this mark on her cheek that the dog pushed Lisa into the kerosene heater, and it was a burn that was on her cheek. Well, when they did the, the report, the pathologist did his report, those findings said that that was a cigarette burn. And, and he smoked along with my sister, but um, the reason why they determined it was a cigarette burn was because it was an exact circle, like a cigarette. Um, they determined that she didn't have alopecia like she was diagnosed with, um, that she was losing her hair because 95% of her hair was being pulled out. Was being what? Sorry? Pulled out. Oh, pulled out. And this is all stuff that what was what they would say old evidence. Like it, it didn't happen the night that she was killed. It was physical evidence that happened prior to her murder. And that is how they determined that she was being physically abused prior. Now, the autopsy revealed that she died from blunt force trauma to her torso. Because there was no external bruising on her chest, they said that he, it was a soft tissue hit. So they said it was either a fist or a, um, a foot. Um, they said the injuries were so severe to her, to her torso that she died within five seconds of being hit. They likened the blow to an adult being in a head-on collision and hitting the steering wheel. Her... Liver was severed, and the right atrium of her heart was just hanging on. That is, is just such an absolutely 
devastating thought, this this poor wee little girl. My goodness. So then we found out from the detective that showed up on the scene that um, he had ran bath water. And when he woke up my sister, he said that... Um, Bill said that he went to run her bathwater, but the detective thinks because she fell in the bathtub about three weeks prior that he was going to put her in the bathtub and say she fell again. But because she died within five seconds, her lungs could not fill up with water, so it wasn't that she fell in the bathtub and drowned. The other part that was telling for me was the um, detective when he spoke, um, and, and, and I'm not sure if this was the lead detective that spoke or if it was another detective, but he spoke that he talked to women that had been in relationships with this guy um, previously, and there was physical and violence and domestic abuse, um, and they, they testified as well. Um, you asked who was there. Um, mostly it was just my immediate family, my mom and my dad and my sister and myself and my other sister. Um, but his family was there, and his sister um, continued to um, be aggressive towards us. She continued to make threats. There was a couple times she was removed from the courtroom. Um, there was someone that testified that um, he abused his mentally challenged brother, um, so there was all these other little pieces that they were able to fit together um, that cleared up a lot of the, well, your sister was there, you know, she was part of it, questions that the community had. Lisa's mother had immediately understood and accepted that her boyfriend had killed her daughter. She lived through all of the horrible emotions, including guilt. She testified. The defense lawyer had no empathy at all, none. He treated her very badly, cruelly even. He did not take into account even for a second that her daughter was dead because of his client. Defense counsel is necessary, but empathy is as well. It was an emotionally charged day. Tell us about at the trial when the verdict was being read. What, what or, you know, how did that go? Probably a very another good day, great day. Um, we were, the jury went out and, you know, you're sitting in the vic- victim advocate's office and they're saying, they're giving you these scenarios, worst case scenario, best case scenario. And, you know, um, you're sitting on pins and needles and you don't, you don't know what to do with yourself. You, you're just, you know, what do you say? Who do you say it to? What? Should I go eat? Should I stay here? Do I go home? Um, and just, just confusion. Um, we, we had a very good DA, a very good assistant DA. We had a very good victim advocate. Um, we had a very good detective. I had a positive experience with the justice system. That being said, I know that there's people that don't. And it's disheartening. But we were able to sit in that office and, and, and get some great advice, get some great feedback to learn about what the process is or what can happen. And um, when we got the call that the jury was in, it was like, that was soon. 
you know, we didn't expect it that soon. And then you're thinking, oh, they told us if it was soon, it wouldn't be a positive experience. Um, we go into the courtroom and we're sitting there and, you know, you just, you're already crying. You're already emotional. You just, you just don't know what to expect and you're expecting the worst, but you want the best. Um, and emotions were high. Um, they gave us a, a, a guilty verdict on the third-degree murder and the miscellaneous murder. Um, they didn't convict him on first-degree murder. And I remember his sister coming across the aisle at us. And I remember the sheriffs running up and pulling her out. Um, you know, I just remember the courtroom erupting in emotions, you know, cries and screams and, and disbelief, you know, because we just didn't think... I mean, we, we knew the evidence was there. We knew that, we knew that he did it, but you know, you just, you, you, it's, it's kind of relief, but it's kind of disbelief, um, all at the same time. And, and everything just carries over into that final moment when you hear that guilty verdict. What was the, um, sentence that he got? So in the state of Pennsylvania, um, again, just because of the, the great victim advocate and the TA, um, they told us that in the state of Pennsylvania at that time, the ma- minimum is seven years. The maximum is 13 years for third-degree murder. Um, when we went in, went in front of the judge, um, the judge said uh, 10 to 20 years. Wow. The, the judge went above and beyond, um, and his explanation was, you know, the prior abuse of Lisa um, and the fact that Lisa was a baby. So he sentenced him to 10 to 20, and Pennsylvania has what's called truth in sentencing. So that means that he wasn't eligible for parole until he did at least 10 years, um, and then at 20 years, unless he committed a crime in prison, he would be released. But at year 10, he was eligible for parole and he could petition the parole board. So another great day, another great day. And again, I can't, I can't say it enough, but justice system for my family worked. What's happening now with, uh, with him? Well, he's out. Um, my dad passed away before he was eligible for parole. Um, my dad passed away in 99. Um, my dad started the first chapter of Parents of Murdered Children in Pennsylvania and, um, you know, helped other victims. He was a statistic because he died within five years of his granddaughter being murdered. Um, but he, can I say this? He lit a fire under our asses. Yes, you absolutely um, can say that. <laughs> it's a perfect way of describing it. We can all now envision exactly what type of person he was and what you should do. How did he decide to start the first chapter of Parents of Murdered Children? And how did he light this fire? <laughs> Tell me a little bit about that. <laughs> he, um, he started going to meetings of um, Parents of Murdered Children in Trumbull County. So in our county, Mercer County, we are two minutes away from the Ohio border. Um, and Trumbull County is in Ohio. So he was going to meetings over in Trumbull County. Not quite sure how he got involved with Trumbull County. Um, 
but he started going to meetings. He met some pretty amazing people that helped him with his grief and helped my mom with her grief. Um, and he just felt the need in Mercer County to start a chapter. Um, he started noticing that our small community here in Mercer County wasn't um, innocent in the crime, wasn't, it, it wasn't as uh, prevalent, but it was still happening. And he talked to other victims because he worked with the victim advocate out of Mercer County because, again, she was just amazing. Um, so he started speaking to other victims. He started going to trials. Lisa's grandfather did great things. It is impressive how he was able to hang on to something and do such good. He saw that there was a need not only within his family, but also within the community. He went to a conference and knew that this was how he would help. Himself, his wife, his daughters. He committed his life to helping other surviving family members cope with the homicide of a loved one. Since he's passed, um, you know, I kind of picked up the torch. Like I said, he kind of lit that fire under <laughs> my ass because I seen his passion for victims. And I, I knew how much it was helping him. And I knew how much it was needed because I knew how much my dad was hurting. I knew how much my mom and my sister were hurting. And parents of murdered children became like a second family for us. Tell me about your involvement I have been involved now since 99 when he passed. In the last five, six years, I've been the chapter leader. And now Trumbull County's chapter doesn't actually have a chapter leader. So I actually am the contact person for Mahoning County, which is another county in Ohio, right next to Trumbull County. So I'm the contact person for Mahoning County and Trumbull County, Ohio. I'm the chapter leader of the Mercer County chapter, but I'm also a contact person for Lawrence County, and I've been contacted by victims in Allegheny County and Erie County as well. Good for you. I'm, I'm really happy to hear that you've, you know, that you continue doing what your father was passionate about, first of all, because it shows also your love for him and your... I guess, pride in him that he did that because, you know, there you stepped in and the fact that it must be helpful to you as well because you're doing it for so long. That, that's, that's very, very, very good for you. And what do you find that it brings to you personally to be involved? And how do you help uh, family members? What types of services do you offer for them? Um, I... A sounding board. Um, I have a lot of people that will call. They don't necessarily come to the meetings, but they'll call and we'll spend a couple hours on the phone, um, you know, or they'll email me a good example of what I like to think of myself, where you can call and you're not judged. Um, no one deserves to be murdered. I don't ever want to see someone walk through the meeting doors that's a new victim because I know that pain. I've lived it. I've been there, and I just... You know, to go to see someone go through it is heartbreaking. But you ask what I get out of it. Um, for me, it's about awareness. Um, I loved Lisa. I miss her every single day of my life. Not everybody can attend meetings. Some don't want to or just can't get there. 
They may be in denial or can't accept their child was murdered. Luckily, they have such a strong and understanding woman like Tina who is available for them, selflessly giving of herself to help others. We need more Tinas in the world. The killer is out now. She runs into him. The first time this happened, it was at a restaurant. She was with her mother. She couldn't trust her eyes. It was complete disbelief. She was stuttering, trying to ask her mother, is that him? They lost their appetites. She stuttered again when she called her sisters to tell them as well. Now when she sees him, she is more verbal. She follows him around the grocery store, telling people he is a child killer. Her loved ones tell her to be careful that he doesn't kill her. But Tina is not worried about her well-being. She is worried about the next two-year-old he will abuse, the next woman, that he may beat someone else to death. They will never see Lisa again, yet they will see him. Gravely unfair. The family fought hard to be sure he served the full 20 years. At the 10-year mark, he was eligible to apply for parole. Well, if it was up to them, this absolutely would not happen. And it didn't. They started a petition and got over 4,000 signatures on it, which they submitted to the parole board, along with their heartfelt letters. All of this is used by the parole board year after year, along with the new letters that Lisa's mother, aunties and grandmother add to the file. Although he didn't get early parole, once he got out, Tina felt deflated. There was no more fight. She had to accept that he served his time and was released. How do you go about doing that exactly? It will never be over, of course. Your love for the deceased doesn't ever go away, and of course, there is Lisa's mom, whose emotions are still so raw. When she is having a particularly bad day, her feelings are so apparent, the hurt oozing out of every pore of her body, that when you see it, you are stopped in your tracks and don't know what to say. It is difficult for people to see and to be around, and that is why so many people drop out of your life. Many of their family, friends, and relatives have disappeared. They say, move on, the trial is over, he was found guilty, it's time to take Lisa's pictures down. What a ridiculous thing to say. Lisa's pictures bring her loved ones back to the cherished memories of the particular days they were taken, remembering those moments with a full heart, and the photos will keep her memory alive for generations to come, pointing out one of her pictures saying, This is Lisa Marie McGee Dixon. She is missed and remembered. I really thank you for being on the podcast today. You know, it's a, an, uh, obviously a tragic story, very sad, uh, I mean, horrible. And I'm glad that you were able to have the courage to speak about, uh, speak about it today. So I really do appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you so very much for allowing me this opportunity. Oh, well, thank you for being on the podcast. I really do appreciate it. Thank you. You have a great day. And you as well. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hey, everyone. I just wanted to let you know that we now have a Patreon link that you can access in the episode show notes. You can contribute as little as $1 a month 
or send a one-time payment through our PayPal account, also in our show notes, or at morningthemurdered at gmail.com. These contributions allow us to continue producing a weekly episode helping families be able to tell their loved ones' stories. I want to thank you all so much for your support. And don't forget to join our Facebook group. I'm not quite sure how people move on after a tragedy. There are support groups online and face-to-face, and there are books and family and friends to lean on. But in reality, when someone loses a loved one to murder, they lose a piece of themselves that can never be returned. Memories are all that are left. So talk about your loved one. And let the world know how important they will be to you forever. These memories become valuable treasures. No one will ever understand your pain. But surround yourself with those that can understand how important it is for you to share your story. I will now light a candle for the victim and their loved ones, ensuring their memory lives on and burns brightly. You are remembered. I want to take a moment and extend my most sincere and humble gratitude to each and every one of you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, or if you would like your voice to be heard on Morning the Murdered and tell the story of your loved one, email me at morningthemurdered at gmail.com. That's M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G-T-H-E-M-U-R-D-E-R-E-D at gmail.com. Thank you to Dennis for editing this podcast. You are absolutely indispensable. Thank you so much. A huge shout out to Patrick for creating the original music that you hear. And the artwork for this podcast was created by Talia with support from Matt and Mick. Thanks so much, guys.